All right, before I kick the show off today, I just want to make like a 30-second note. This series, this podcast series called South of Mumbai, it's crowdfunded, or it's me-funded, or it's with the help of friends funded. Uh, that means that you can play a role here if... This program is of interest to you, means anything to you. You can donate. Just go to uh, GoFundMe. I don't even like the word donate. This is not a charity. Uh, you know, we're making shows. We're, we're accruing some costs. Look, I used the word accruing. Isn't that odd? So you can help uh, shoulder that burden or help me shoulder that burden by just donating whatever it's worth. I feel like if I do eight podcasts, well, maybe you throw eight bucks at me. What's that? A buck for half an hour of your life. It's pretty easy, pretty easy, and it goes a long way, especially in India. All right, that's it. Let's get to the show. Hello there. Hi, new friends, old friends. Welcome to the program. It's Citizen Reporter. It's South of Mumbai. That's the podcast series. So if you're new to this world, these are podcasts. They're audio programs. They're downloadable or subscribable, so you get them whenever they're ready. And this is one of these journeys that I have made with the help of friends and listeners, as we mentioned at the beginning, helping fund this project. And this one has been India. And today we're going to listen to someone, someone that I, that I just met. It's, his name is Clinton. Why don't we get to it? Um, he is uh, someone who's involved in both the environment and also business, in fact. Or he's making the environment his business, protecting it, in fact. Uh, you might know the term upcycling or recycling. Well, Clinton's life is uh, very much connected to that. And then there's this element of wildlife and animals and protecting species and, and saving them. And it's a really incredible story. And, you know, sometimes on the podcast, you might hear from people that I've known for a really long time. And maybe you can tell when you listen, maybe that, that helps or that does something to the conversation. In this case, I met Clinton this very night that we recorded this. It was in Goa, in the south of Goa. And we you'll hear the ocean in the background. We met at the beach at night. And the, it's a presence throughout the interview, not a very dominant presence, but there it is in the background and occasionally even some sounds from the various bars and things that we tried to get away from. Uh, so I'm very happy to bring you this conversation. Clinton is the kind of person whose life is, yeah, really inspiring, but also who can talk without me, I don't know, interrupting. Uh, he, he, he is interesting. He's a standalone guest, in my opinion. You'll hear me in there every now and then, but I really just wanted to introduce this program, say hello, and then let it ride. Let's go to the beach in the south of Goa. So let's, let me do that. Let's, let's go to it. And oh yeah, and, and occasionally I'll add in, I've got some ideas here for, since we discuss nature, you'll hear from some of the nature sounds of South India, of Goa, and, uh, and elsewhere. Anyway, uh, Easter eggs, look forward to it. Let's go. Well, hello, I'm Clinton, and uh, I live here in Goa, India, and uh, what keeps me busy is waste management. 
so I'm a mechanical engineer. I've studied four and a half years of engineering, uh, but I, I I follow a completely different line of employment, which is basically handling people's waste. And I also do awareness programs in schools, and I help the government with advice on waste management practices. Um, that's because I've worked with waste for about 15 years. I'm not book smarts, I'm street smarts. I've learned all of this from learning from the waste workers on the streets. I, I, I would call myself right now that the latest term I'm using is a recycling entrepreneur. And because that kind of describes me better. But uh, the reason why people call me an environmentalist is because I work with things connected to the environment, by definition. But actually everything that we do is connected to the environment anyway, if you think about it. The thing is, anybody uh, who kind of thinks outside the box is is an activist or an environmentalist or something like that. And these are big terms we use to describe things which should have been actually kind of matter of fact. Uh, I grew up in a village, so I kind of I'm one of the last generation in India that grew up without cable television. So our kind of entertainment was go out in the field, go fishing, play with the boys, and in like you know interact with nature a lot. So basically, when we moved into the city, which was in the early 80s, there it we we couldn't really go out and like play video games because we weren't just used to that. So we'd actually still go out looking out for nature. And so my brother, who's three years younger than me, he actually started doing snake rescue as a hobby and interest. And I kind of carried on after him. And so we kind of explored our interests in, in nature and wildlife. And that's how I'd say I grew my interests with wildlife. Though I, I realized at some point I couldn't really pursue all my interests. I had to kind of consolidate into one or two. And that turned into recycling primarily because I moved out of the city where the city has bins and you, you just take your waste and you put it in a bin. And when we moved, uh, my whole family moved out of the city into a village, I picked the bag of garbage and I went searching for a bin and I didn't find a bin. So I was thinking uh, about that and wondering what I should do with my waste. And the neighbors said, just throw it into the field. And if you don't want to do that, there's a river there. You can just throw it into the river. And I just thought... You know, that doesn't feel right and there must be something better you can do with that. And I just started following, you know, the most logical ways, you know, like in India, everybody recycles in some form or the other. Mm -hmm. No Indian ever throws a newspaper out. Yeah. We all collect newspaper and then give it to the local general store who will buy it off us to wrap all the food stuff. Or uh, nobody sells, nobody chucks your metal out because the local recycler boy will come around and buy your metal off you. And so, I mean, there are all these informal recycling ways that, that are part of our normal life that we don't even call recycling. Yeah. Uh, in the Goan villages, what people do is with their organics is that they just dig a hole and bury it and then they cover it up with mud. And then a year later, they put it for the plants. And now we find that's basically what we call composting. Yeah. So, I mean, what I did was I basically started following all those natural techniques and finding solutions for each kind of waste fraction. So, uh, and I was 19 when I started doing this. So, I realized if I started to just explore the existing infrastructure that is there, it's not government set up, it's, it's people set up, it's, it's already there. If I just use all that, I get about 75% of my waste out of the bin. 
and then that got me thinking if i can actually solve 75% of the garbage problem what about the 25% and over the years i found out that i didn't have to develop any new recycling technique i just had to find the person that was doing it and eventually uh, i got higher and higher and today i would say we are close to like 95 to 98% of managing all our waste responsibly so back in 1999 when i started doing this i would blog about it and i had a few people that followed it and i was very excited it was purely to manage my own waste and i realized i'm managing 75% of my waste and i told everybody that if everybody did this then we need to go out and throw our waste once a week rather than every day uh of course i i was experimenting with my own home and i went around to my neighbor neighborhood community and did the same thing and it worked so i was again blogging about it and then one day i get a call from a man who turns out he was a commissioner of the city of panjim the capital of goa and he says i heard about your blog and i'd like to come and talk to you so can you come over to my office so i went there not realizing that he'd actually hire me to handle the entire city mm-hmm. now here i'm 21 years old and i'm the consultant for waste management for the capital of the city so i was overwhelmed by that title first of all so i said no i can't do this and he said okay you just do it as a study for 3 months and when i did the study i realized that uh, you know i collected data that the city didn't know they didn't know how much waste they produced they didn't know what was in their waste they didn't know where it came from and i had just finished all my studies i'm a mechanical engineer so i kind of had that kind of study mindset of you know following a a study report and putting a report on the table at the end of my semester or something so i did that and i gave them a report at the end of 3 months and they were very impressed with it and i realized at that point i actually am giving them some substance and so then they asked me to work for a year and over the year we realized that we could actually plan waste management for the city you know in a very modular manner we divided the city into zones we kind of worked at each zone as a as a specific unit and so then we could actually calculate how much waste would come from that zone where it went and so we used a kind of a decentralized model where we didn't need to transport all the waste to a central point and then treat it so we set up community composters we talked to rag pickers and kind of put them out from the streets to a kind of a confined confined space where they had like a shaded environment a kind of a more recognized job they did the same thing that they were doing on the street but in better conditions and they were recognized as people that were managing their waste and we kind of managed to reduce the waste a lot uh, from which was going to the dump uh, almost about 60% you know uh, and that was quite commendable because people started coming from other parts of india to have a look at us internationally as well and uh, they started calling panjim a bin free city because you didn't need to have a bin on the street anymore you could actually have door to door waste collection and that waste went into your decentralized composter or it went into a decentralized recycling station and then there was no need for even garbage trucks to be around you needed to send a truck only once a, a week sometimes just to pick up the the leftovers I had challenges as well. I was dealing with 980 people that worked for the city's uh, sanitation department. 
and half of them didn't even have an education. So if you ask them to go and count how many homes they uh, picked up waste from, they didn't even know how to do that. So we found simple ways. So we'd say like every home you go and service, you pick up a stone and put it in your pocket. And at the end of the day, we'd count how many stones that they homes that they picked up from. And so uh, I learned a lot, but then it kind of got a little frustrating to work with the red tape in the government. You know, every decision you take takes three months to be executed because of all the paperwork that has to follow. Mm -hmm. And so eventually, uh, three years later, I decided I was going to do it on my own. So I quit that job and I set up my own uh, recycling company. Uh, we've set up a f an organization uh, which is not an NGO, uh, not an, uh, it's a for-profit. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I did it more of a challenge. I wanted to uh, know if I could actually set up a legitimate business in waste management. Uh, because waste management generally is left for people with lower castes in India. And uh, I mean, when I had those 980 people working with me, I looked at their names and I, you can tell from the names the caste. And I think there were like, uh, I think 90% were not from Goa and all of them were low caste people and the 10% the were also Goans that had low caste. There was not a single pa person with like a middle class or a higher caste uh, uh, family. So I wanted to prove that you don't have to have caste to work with waste and you don't have to, it doesn't have to be messy, it doesn't have to be something that the poorer people do, anyone can do it. And above all, that it's a legitimate business that you can actually uh, you know, do it and get recognized for it. But of course, there are, there are challenges. I mean, when I went to the government to register my business, I found there wasn't even a category for me. So eventually, the government looked at me and said, OK, we'll register you as someone that deals with agriculture because I kind of produce compost, which goes to agriculture. So that's what I got registered with. And someone who buys and sells plastic because predominantly most of the garbage is plastic. So basically, I'm an agricultural and a plastic guy right now. That's how... Yeah. Then, I mean, the, the other challenges that came around was uh, citing my warehouse. So, I couldn't even find a place. They said, waste management can't happen in villages. So, I was like, okay. And it can't happen in cities either. And then, uh, finally, it can't happen even in industrial areas. So, where does it happen? And the government says, well, we have to decide that location. We haven't had the time to do that. So, please wait till we do that. And I've been still waiting. So, Technically, by definition, my warehouse is in an illegal location. Mm -hmm. Though I think it should be in an in a industrial area, which is where we are. So, I mean, we're dealing with things like that. And then we're dealing with taxation problems. Like, for example, when I pick up waste, mm -hmm. it's got no value. It's, got, it's, it's, it's garbage. But when I start sorting it out into, like, plastic bottles or glass bottles or metal, and I sell it as recyclables, then the government says, oh, you got to pay us 5% tax on that. So, I mean, it doesn't make sense sometimes. Like, we buy stuff for no value and then we have produced value and then we get taxed on that. Uh, so, I mean, there are challenges. And then also we have challenges with people not respecting our stuff. They mm. treat our stuff like the waste that they produce. And we got to keep telling them that you guys are creating the mess. We are cleaning it up. So, we are a little better than you. So, respect us and treat us like you. So we've had people with say that you can't, our staff can't use elevators mm -hmm. uh, or our staff can't uh, talk to them. The caste system gets repeated and I keep t telling my staff that they need to stand up for themselves. And so what we do is uh, 
we give them a little bit of uh, support so if anything any of these situations happen i go out go out and i support them or they have uniforms so then they kind of feel a little better about themselves they have protection equipment like boots and gloves and face masks so they feel okay you know i'm, I'm doing something and i'm i'm also you know taking care of those things a lot of the times workers don't know uh, how hazardous it can be working with waste so i mean breaking tube lights uh, you know this compact fluorescent lights yeah. releases mercury vapor and these guys have no idea they'll burn cables and wires in the open and you got to train them and tell them about the haz- hazards and sometimes it's hard i mean telling them mercury vapor is coming out of a tube light is hard because they can't see it and i can't see it but i know it's there and they say well i've been doing it for at least 10 years and nothing's happened to me and they have no idea about these long term diseases mm-hmm. that happen you know so we are a very small company goa has about 1.5 million people and we handle waste from about 10000 homes so we are a dot in the whole big picture but uh, we function in a completely zero waste environment basically whatever we pick up we treat or we dispose in an environmentally safe manner it's no hi-fi science it's common sense so basically what we do is we make sure that all our clients uh sort their waste into two categories the organics and the inorganics mm-hmm. and if they can't do that we can't help them so that's the first ground rule so once we have do when once we do that we turn most of our waste into organics into compost and in some cases we turn it into biogas and then that's turned into fuel or electricity uh in the inorganics we we sort the waste into recyclables that are easy to recycle recyclables that are hard to recycle and non recyclables All right, I'm jumping in here again in the middle of the podcast. You've heard Clinton talking about his work which is I I say fascinating. I I think you're picking it up not only because of what it involves with the environment with recycling with getting managing people i mean many of you in your own work maybe you manage people i i don't very much so it's especially of interest and 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 new to me but managing people and then this context of of castes and classes and education right these these elements of education that can make the work harder or maybe not harder but a, a challenge right some something you have to get around things like counting not being able to count not being able to read what do you do about it how do you get around that i thought that was really fascinating now in the second half of this program and again i'm going to let clinton tell his story cuz he tells it so well he doesn't need me interrupting but this part is more about nature and you know india you probably know this but i really got to see so much of it and and I have a new respect for nature and the way it is valued and protected no no not always but in so many ways and by so many people it's uh it's it's incredible and not just the greenery but also the animals and the living things well i guess greenery is living but i mean animals uh so i find that part really fascinating and that is going to be the sort of setting the stage for the second half of the conversation at the beach in the south of goa let's go
most people in in around don't really know much about the local wildlife i mean if you go to a school and you ask children to name 10 birds number 1 would be the common crow the pigeon would figure there the sparrow and maybe the peacock and it would usually end there i mean we've got 138 species of go- birds that are easily found and even more i think goa has home to about 400 different species of bird and i kind of thought it would be interesting to learn about that so i i kind of hung out with people that would go bird watching hmm. uh, not really there's quite a lot of people and i don't know i was kind of a nerd at that age at 19 so i would keep compiling information and so i kept bird lists and then so i eventually had a small mini database of what bird is found in which part of goa so which meant more people wanted to meet me and then that's how i met more people who connected with birds similarly uh, snake rescue is another thing i mean when i made a list i i listed about a seven or uh, sorry 17 people that did snake rescue in goa today there's about 300 people that do snake rescue and for a small state that's a huge number of people it also means a lot of snakes are no longer killed or misidentified and uh, we've done a campaign called save the frog and linked it to the worldwide campaign of save the frog i mean frogs are are a species which uh, you know uh, indicate climate change uh, one of the f- species that react immediately to climate change when decli- declining frog populations indicate that there's something wrong with the local ecosystem and uh, go and eat frogs uh, it's kind of tradition yeah, traditionally when as a protein supplement chicken was not easily available so people used killed frogs as a protein supplement but uh, as chicken became readily available uh, frogs became an exotic meat so now like the city people came in and wanted to eat frog legs and uh, on a typical plate of uh, of five or six frogs would be killed so it kind of decimated the local populations we were even exporting frog legs for the western market till in 86 it got banned but nobody ever stopped the actual poaching of frogs in the fields and so we basically instead of fighting the government worked with the government so we told the forest department well we know you have funding so let's let's use some of that to make uh, info sheets which you can give out to schools and to the general public let's uh, make uh, frogs come out in the monsoons so we made umbrellas with save the frog stickers on them and then we uh, put uh, posters out and then uh, i mean we spent a lot of time creating awareness material which the government paid for and then uh, disseminated it out to the people and then we also did the enforcement i mean with the carrot comes a stick as well so <laughs> we uh, the forest department didn't want to go out on their own because they were intimidated by the local people so we went out with the forest department to kind of give them the extra push and so when they actually got people with frogs we were there to kind of be there to make sure that it actually happened that the person actually got arrested mm-hmm. and uh, i would say in the last 6 years a lot of people have been arrested though that's not the focus right. they are they are being used as the examples most of them haven't been prosecuted they've been given warnings and let off but it has sent a, a big message out to the general public that frogs need to be protected we we need we can eat it but it's and there's a there's a limit to how much we can eat and so it's since it's a protected species 
we try to curb the the mass poaching so if we find a person who's got one or two frogs we tell him you shouldn't be doing this but we don't arrest him but if there's someone who's got a bag of 40 or 50 frogs then he's going to be pulled in mm. we've we've completely controlled the restaurants that were serving frog meats in the menus they it's gone off menu it's gone underground and that's harder to deal with and we've also convinced a lot of people that eating frogs can be dangerous because i mean with the pesticide residues in the fields frogs are biomagnifying it and so it's being stored in their fat and their meat and so when you eat frogs you can actually you know hmm. be affected by those uh, heavy metals in them Yeah, turtle nesting has been happening in Goa for centuries. It's just that when the uh, development happened on the beaches is when turtle nesting started declining. However, um, a, a few locals as well as the forest department decided that they'd, they'd save a couple of beaches as turtle nesting sites. So, I mean, turtle nesting and tourism conflict, they both happen at the same time in the year. So you have the turtles fighting for the same beach as the tourists for the restaurants and sunbeds. So what what has happened is, uh, is turtles always lose, and luckily uh, two beaches have been saved for turtle nesting in the north and the south of Goa, and the third beach is the one we're on right now. Coincidentally, uh, so uh, the North Goa is a perfect example of how tourism has won. So they had restaurants on the beach. and the turtles stopped coming with all the light and the noise so we don't have any nesting happening there in the last few years whereas in the south there's no development absolutely the forest department ensures that there's nobody even on the beach in the evenings and so that has thrived but uh, the best i'd say is this beach where they have both turtle nesting as well as tourism and what a lot of the people that live on the beach is they self impose a 10 o'clock rule where they switch the music down to a lower volume and they put the lights off so turtle nesting still happens and i think it's also an added attraction a lot of people come to this beach during the turtle nesting season to see the nests and to maybe watch the turtles go out into the sea which is maybe not okay or <laughs> i i have mixed opinions about that but i i think anyone seeing a turtle going out into the sea will will remember that moment for the rest of their life yeah and so indeed there will actually be people from the forestry department walking this beach at night patrolling yeah which is I, pretty amazing yeah it's pretty amazing yeah. that that actually uh, an insignificant animal as a turtle as what we think of nowadays is actually given that much of importance. I mean people have criticized our frog campaign as well saying like come on stop talking about the frogs there's so many what about the tiger? <laughs> and of course I mean all animals are important as well as humans but I mean I kind of feel that always animals are given second preference to humans. something i just put on the side now just yeah. no way i can do both you know i i used to organize treks and i used to uh, take people into the i used to do bird watching as well but i mean 
if you work five days a week or in in my case seven days a week sometimes there's no time for anything else and i don't know i think when you're 19 years old you have that energy mm-hmm. now when you're 35 you don't <laughs> <laughs> but but indeed i mean again i'm meeting people for the first time i'm learning you you have a career as someone who works in improving the environment and making a difference in the environment and you can you can do that as a career because i think often the the assumption is uh you'll never be able to survive or you know you'll sacrifice your life for others or the environment and so on well i'll tell you one big change that happened in my life was at cop 15 it's a conference of parties in uh, the climate change negotiations that happen so i was uh, invited by the indian youth delegation to to join them and go to copenhagen this was i think it was 2010 or 2009 i don't remember when we went there thinking we're making a big difference i mean it was a, a great show mm-hmm. uh, people from all over the world came a lot of the young people like us went there and i quickly realized that our position there was to 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 kind of be the the side shows that happened you know to be the protests and and we quickly realized that there was very little that was happening at these conferences there were a lot of people eating grand meals having a lot of wine uh, but very little discussion happening it was a little bit of you do this but no i will do this and i you i cannot do that because you don't do this and finally uh, the big leaders came obama came on the the day before the conference got over and said well we don't commit to anything and when he said that china did the same and india did the same and then the whole negotiations got derailed and i was so upset because for almost 6 months i had built my mind up to think that that was the life changing moment that the world would stop and change and in in a split second it all changed down went extremely downhill i uh, we were so upset that we we didn't know what to do and then someone said let's go and protest <laughs> so we all went to the conference venue and it was i think minus 2 and the 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 danish people didn't ha- even have enough cops to control us so they brought the german cops in and the swedish cops in and then they were all made a wall and we kept screaming at them shame on you and shame on you and we screamed for four hours till our, our throats were da- done the cops felt sorry for us and gave us coffee <laughs> and uh, i i was i remember that moment i had this yellow vest which said climate not saved and i was so depressed that nothing had happened of course we screamed but it didn't make any difference and we were all going home and then when we went ho- on my way home i was thinking what am i going to do and then i got off the bus and i watched another guy get off the bus and he had the same yellow thing and he looked as miserable as i was and then i kind of thought on my way well you know the world's not going to change but i'm going to do what i can do on my own so i kind of that kind of thinking made me change when i came back to goa back from all that adventure i realized i'm not going to think about anything else i'm not going to think about the big picture i'm just going to narrow down on what i can do and i kind of just went straight for waste management and i said okay let me just kind of do something properly not just talk and like tell everybody this is what you should do save the environment save the world let's actually do it and uh I'm not making a big difference. I'm probably doing 0.1% to 2% of the state's garbage, but I'm doing it. Mm. And I'm doing it in the best manner possible, I think. And I think if every if if there were 20 people that had the same 
logic and mindset that I was doing, we wouldn't have a garbage problem in the entire state. And I and I think it's a very small number. And so what I have done is besides run my business, I also encourage young people to, you know, follow uh, the kind of franchise model or you know just clone our operations. So we don't want to grow any bigger than we are. We are happy with what we have. We employ 18 people. They all make above average wages. We don't pollute anything, and we um, uh, we kind of create jobs for a, at least a thousand people in the in the processes that we do. We help a lot of people manage their waste in in the best possible way, and if if we could just clone our operation, you know, everybody would be happy. So that's what I think we should be doing, and that's what I'm working towards right now. Well, Clinton, it's very inspiring and a lot to learn, and. Uh yeah, I can imagine that if you inspire someone listening, imagine how many people who've met you in person or seen your work who are also inspired to go, as you say, and, and do what you're doing uh, or, or their own version of it. Uh, yeah, thank you. Welcome. I enjoyed this uh, conversation with you. So there you have it. That's Clinton. That's Goa. Not only is it recorded outside in nature in Goa, but it also gives you this insight, not just business-wise, not just... Uh, it's, it's also about society, and, and it's just such a multi-leveled, multi-leveled, multi-layered conversation, I would say. Uh, I hope you enjoyed. I'll link to some articles and some of the stuff that, that he's talking about so you can read for yourself. And I really just look forward to hearing more about Clinton's work because I think, you know, he's he's onto something. And and I also love the fact that he's talking about how he's he's himself changing as he does this work and his priorities change and his, his thought process changes. So I really enjoy that too because I think we all go through those changes. I, I know when I listen back to I don't know, where were we at? 400-something programs, 490 programs. I, I, I hear changes in myself, and uh, I'm curious about exploring that. And it's fun to have gotten to do that in India. <laughs> All right, so the journey continues south of Mumbai. More shows coming at you. I hope you're enjoying. One way that you can let me know is by either leaving a comment. I know, nobody leaves comments anymore. Maybe on Facebook, if you're into that. Maybe you can tweet at me. Or if you really want this series to be found, as I do, uh, go to like iTunes where you get podcasts and write a review. It's really easy to do. Just honestly, nobody does it. And even just a few people doing it goes a long way. For some reason, that's how things get found. It may not make any sense. It may not seem like the best way, but that is one big way. So if you could leave a review for Citizen Reporter... It's been a while since anybody did that. It would, it would be, I, I would be very honored and, and I would consider it a thank you. Beyond that, of course, I am very grateful to all of you that have donated. Uh, like I said in the beginning, I'm able to f- afford the plane ticket, but that is not where this ends. Unfortunately, there are other costs and I'm, I'm bearing it. Uh, I don't have a normal job. I'm a podcast producer. I produce podcasts. Um, so that that is something that I could really use help from from the audience. That's why I bring it up. And I, I don't like to bring things like this up. I wish we never had to talk about money. But anyway, 
I did it, okay? And now you, you do it. And I'll catch you very soon for yet another program as we move south even more from Goa, heading into Karnataka. More topics. Oh, the stuff that awaits you and me. <laughs> Anyway, thanks a lot. Citizenreporter.org is the uh, website. And on the Twitter, it's Bicycle Mark with a K. But you probably already knew that because you're my people. All right. I'm out of here. See you. See you. Rangu bheja lava lamua Kaha se aave ho Rangu bheja lava lamua Kaha se aave ho Rangu पटना से आवे मुरंग वसे आवे पटना से आवे मुरंग वसे आवे राहे बाट रंग वाखेलत आवे हो रंग भीजल बलमुआ कहाँ से आवे हो रंग भीजल बलमुआ Well, I was invited to Sweden because uh, my Swedish friends thought I was so interested in waste management that I should go and have a look at their systems there. So I spent a month in the country and I, I travelled a bit looking at how people manage their waste over there. I was taken to uh, waste facilities, I went to recycling points and when I came back from Sweden I was convinced that what I saw was going to work here. So I did the same thing. And I, I, I set up uh, a list of what gets recycled where. I, may, I categorized waste into the Swedish recycling fractions. And I set up what they have uh, as recycling points. All in experimental levels, but none of them worked. And I was quite upset because uh, it just seemed that people didn't really care the way that the Swedes cared. But then I realized uh, eventually is that I could take the best of Sweden and India and put them together and make it work. So I kept the Swedish recycling station model and I converted the categories from Sweden to the Indian categories. I talked to the waste pickers in India and I asked them, what do you take? And so I created the categories based on the Indian waste picker. So that if you separated your waste uh, into the same 8-bin system that Sweden does, you separate it into the category that the Indian recycler wants. I'll give you an example. In Sweden they have a bin called plastics. In India, that wouldn't work because in plastics, we have pet bottles, which gets recycled in a different way that plastic bags get recycled, that hard plastics get recycled. And in Sweden, what happens is uh, all of that goes to one system. And so when I separated these things, uh, it meant that it was easier for the recycler to understand what the recycling station was for. So the, the end user would put the pet bottles in the bin and the recycler would empty that bin. And then it was an understood system. Mm-hmm. So uh, we basically designed the whole system and implemented the good ideas of Sweden and excluded the things that wouldn't have worked mm-hmm. because we tried it out and it didn't work. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I mean things like uh, color codes I realized weren't, uh, weren't a standard anywhere in the world. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I mean England uses brown as organics. Yeah. I don't even know what color the US uses. Um, I, I know India uses green by, uh, by, by general standard. So 
I didn't I kind of looked at all the recycling colors that are being used worldwide and I decided what are the most appropriate colors trying to match some other colors and I realized that the signage wasn't there so we created signage I had a friend of mine from Sweden who's a tattoo artist <laughs> to draw all the things and so we used a lot of pictures in our in our signage because go uh, India has 4000 languages and dialects so I mean putting all that would defeat the purpose so we just have the the category separation in Eng- mentioned in english and a huge picture 80% of the signage is the pictures of what goes into the bin mm-hmm. so it's easier to understand mm-hmm. and uh, i copy lefted this because i kind of realized that if i copyrighted it it wouldn't have gone anywhere yeah. and since we've copy lefted it i think the entire state has adopted it as a, as the standard i mean if you go to the state pollution board they use the signage that we created the city i i started with they use it as a standard mm-hmm. and i have seen people using it as far as north india in a in a place called dehradun mm-hmm. uh in a place called dharamshala and in delhi i've seen it being used there and and i've only told those people to just let me know that they're using it right. and they're free to use it as much as they want